This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. And welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Acronym TV, This Week in Blackness, The Majority Report, Jay Smooth, All In with Chris Hayes, Historical Blackness, Counterspin, and The Young Turks. And you know the old saying about history being written by the victors? Well, it turns out that is not the best way to get a complete picture of what really happened. Who would have thought? Never underestimate the power of the people when they understand the message. Never underestimate that. I think that this is something that can be done quite quickly. I think it's something that can be done rather efficiently. It's just going to require a large enough parade. It's going to require a large enough people to understand the core concepts. And that's the real work that we have to do right now, mm-hmm. is, is hit that, that critical tipping point, which is probably around 20 or 30 percent of the, of, the, of the voting populace actually understanding the issue. And a big part of the issue when creating a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy movement is an understanding of how race and racism were constructed in the United States through law and how those laws informed our culture in much the same way those corporate rights have been constructed through the law to ensure rule of the wealthy minority over the majority and how our culture reinforces and legitimizes that lack of democracy. Right from the very beginning, Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution defined people as property. You see, the authors of the Constitution were very interested in protecting their property, including slaves. No person held to service or labor in one state, under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. The Indian Removal Act of 1830. Indigenous communities are forced from their homelands. Over 10 years, 100,000 native children and adults marched thousands of miles west into unknown arid territory. 15,000 do not survive the journey. But over 25 million acres of land is made available for white settlers. 1854, the people versus Hall. Non-whites are barred from testifying in court. No black, mulatto, or Indian shall be allowed to give evidence in favor of or against the white man. 1857, Dred Scott versus Sanford. Free blacks are taxed, but still have no rights of citizenship granted to whites. 1862, Emancipation Proclamation in District of Columbia. Slaves are freed in D.C., but former slave owners are reimbursed for slaves given up. Whites are paid over $1 million in reparations for lost property. 1862, Homestead Act. 50 million acres of formerly indigenous land in the West having been violently invaded by U.S. soldiers in violation of treaties, is distributed by the government at low cost to white settlers only. And 100 million acres of indigenous land are given for free to railroad developers. 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act bans immigration of both skilled and unskilled Chinese laborers. 1924 Johnson-Reed Act creates an immigration quota system based on national origin favoring Nordics over the inferior races of Asia and Southern and Eastern Europe. 1934. In the wake of the Great Depression, the National Housing Act is implemented, creating a federal housing authority 
to provide loans and federal subsidies for home ownership, but FHA mortgage underwriting standards discriminate against non-whites and investment in non-white communities through a process called redlining. 1942, an executive order forces 111,000 Japanese Americans into concentration camps. And the war on drugs declared by Richard Nixon violently targets and imprisons people of color disproportionately through today. heard that uh, former senator, now president of the Heritage Foundation, Jim DeMint, had some commentary recently mm. Mm-hmm. about slavery. Mm. Now, you might say, hey, <laughs> hey, guy who runs Heritage Foundation, Republican guy, do you really want to talk about slavery? Because every time you guys do, you mess up. But maybe, just maybe, Jim DeMint was going to do it in a reasonable way. Just maybe really? Jim Mint was going to come in and like say something and lay it down because he is the head of this very, very powerful Republican uh, space. And he's like, listen, I want to be reasonable, and I'm going to tell you guys how it is. I'm going to give you a reasonable explanation as to how slavery and America and all that stuff and government. Let's, let's, I'm going to make this comment about slavery, and you guys are all going to be shocked at how reasonable we are. All right? And here, here, here we go. Hold on. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm pulling up now. Uh, this is Jim Demand on slavery. This progressive, the whole idea of being progressive is to progress away from those ideas that made this country great. Hmm. What we're trying to conserve as conservatives are those things that work. So before we even get into this, let's let's understand here that <laughs> Jim Demand. So what he's doing here, he's attacking slavery. Right, I mean, he's having progressives, right, up front. Like, he's like, listen, these 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 ideas, blah blah. So first, that little little punch at progressives, right? But he he he's not done yet. He's not done, folks. Hold on, I'm controlling the sound here. Here we go. They work today. They work for young people. They work for minorities, and we we can change this country and turn and change its course uh, very quickly if we just remember what works. Now. What works? <laughs> it's the question. Because we, like, we can change the course of the country implying that we're going in a very, very wrong way right now. And why are we going in the wrong way? Gonna let you just think about that. But continue, Mr. DeMint. Okay, now what if somebody, let's say you're, you're talking with a liberal person and they were to turn around and say, oh yeah, well, uh, uh, that founding fathers thing worked out really well. Look at the civil war we had 80 or so years later. Well, the reason that the, the slaves were eventually freed was the Constitution. Wait. What? Wait, 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 w
The Constitution? You mean the one? Okay. The, the, are we thinking about the same Constitution? Maybe there's a different Constitution. Yeah. Maybe there's Constitution Part G. <laughs> that was like, listen, slavery is bad. I understand we're going to let it ride for a while, but slavery is really bad. Um, continue, sir. I mean, it was like the conscience of the American people. Stop. And no. What? Whoa. The, what? It was like the conscience of the American. You mean the, the American people that enslaved black people and forced them to work for hundreds of years? Those people? And they felt bad about it. They terrible. Yeah, they kind of did feel bad. I mean, they were whipping and chains and selling, forcing black women to, 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 to birth new slaves and ripping children from their mother's arms and, you know, but they didn't really want to. They just really needed to build the global economy. Guys. Constitution! Plus, let's, let's continue. Unfortunately, there were some court decisions like Dred Scott and others that defined some people as property, but the Constitution kept calling us back to all men are created equal. Stop. Wait. What? So okay. 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 <laughs> Unfortunately, there were some court decisions like Dred Scott. <laughs> Just like, you know, we tried... But the doggone Supreme Court of the United States, they just kept messing it up by having, by issuing these really bad rulings like Dred Scott and Plessy v. Ferguson. Ugh. Ugh. This one, I just want to be uh, really clear about all this work. And so it was the, it was the Constitution that it was, it was bringing us back. It was bringing us back. Uh, I believe, wait, hold on. I just want to be clear, um, that this is, this, uh, this was a part of the Constitution, right? Uh, uh, about, uh, this was where representatives and direct, uh, and direct taxes shall not, uh, shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within the union according to the respective numbers which shall be determined by adding uh, to the whole number of free persons including those bound uh, to service by, for, for a term of years and excluding Indian, Indians not taxed three fifths of all other persons. Right. Guess all men are created equal. After we roll in and just slaughter all the native people, let's just get them out of the way. Let the men cook. Oh, uh, and we have inalienable rights uh, in the minds of, of God. But a lot of the, 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 the move to free the slaves came from the people. It did not come from the federal government. Scott! Okay. Okay. The movement to free, to free the slaves did come from some people. Those people were known as abolitionists, and you know what? People hated those people. The majority of people hated those people. Wasn't there a war? I don't know. There, I, I don't know if it was a war. It was. Well, it was like a skirmish. It was a skirmish. <laughs> it was a mild skirmish between like a couple of people up in the north and a couple of people down south, and they just kind of you know pew 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 pew, and then eh. so it's a slap fight. You know? It's a slap fight. <laughs> I just want to. I just want to understand. Like, so, so I just want to be clear here. So, the people, the American people, were just like, we can't have all these slaves, all this free labor, all this free labor we're getting. There's all this wealth we have. No, we need to fight. It was the people. The people. The people were this. Continue to cook, sir. It came from just a growing movement among the people, particularly people of faith, uh, that this was wrong. I mean, people like Wilberforce in in, in, in Britain, England, yeah, who persisted for years, right. His faith because of his love for people. So no one, no liberal is going to be able to win a debate that big government freed the slaves. In fact, it- Wait! Sir! What is- can we talk- Sir! What? I don't- okay. 
The but, government did the, well, but, it was the Emancipation Proclamation! Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, uh, <laughs> I can't, my head hurts. The government, no, it was the people. It was the oh, people. Oh yeah, it was the people. The people rose up and they went and they just, you know, cut all the shackles off there of all no, the There was nothing people. else. They just like, yeah, they just, yeah. everyone just said, you, you, you may go. They're just like, just pick this one last, just pick that one last barrel of cotton and then you're out. Guys, Peace listen. out. Remember, there was the layer, there were the slaves, there were the vampires, and then there was the north. And then once Abraham Lincoln broke through the vampire line that inspired the North to push down, which is what we commonly refer to as the Civil War. So once all the vampires were slain, then we then freed all the captive black people and then allowed them to freely circulate throughout the United States with no resistance whatsoever. In fact, we were proud of the African Americans for <laughs> surviving under vampire tyranny for so long. And it's interesting because because uh, uh, I, I uh, the the the, video, the clip is now being circulated uh, uh, from Right Wing Watch. So if you ever just want some real, just to go seriously Republicans, you can swing by Right Wing Watch. Uh, and they point out in the Right Wing Watch, uh, they says, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation was a presidential proclamation, and the Thirteenth Amendment was initiated by the federal government. You think uh, historian Mike. Michael uh, Les Benedict notes that Republicans at the time advocated for a quote-unquote nationalist view of the Constitution, unlike the quote-unquote largely state rights Democratic Party, uh, end quote. Abraham Lincoln's critics, historian Don E. Uh, Fernbacher points out, uh, uh, points out, pillared him as a quote-unquote tyrant who was uh, bringing the, about the destruction of the old union of sovereign states and setting the nation on the road to totalitarianism uh, by subverting the rights and powers of the states. Confederate leaders insisted that the Civil War was a quote-unquote war waged by the federal government against the seceding states. What? How is... And then but the duty quotes, the duty quotes, Wilbur, Wilbur Fresher? Wilbur Force. Wilbur Force? That dude, that dude, I think, died 30 years before the Civil War. Yeah, and he, uh, it's just, uh, it's, I, this one, this, this is, this is. It doesn't make any sense. It makes, it makes, it makes negative sense. It makes all the sense that this is the idea that they want to push. Well, yeah, that makes absolute sense because, I mean, you know, they, they want to whitewash history and they want to, you know, it's still, it's it's along the vein of, you know, Republicans freed the slaves. I mean, at least, I mean, didn't they used to say Republicans freed the slaves? Now it's not even Republicans freed the slaves. It's individual God-fearing Christians. Well, no, it's still Republicans. Republicans uh, freed Individual slaves. God-fearing Christian Republicans freed the slaves. All right. Well, as long, I just can't keep up with all the all the no. changing history. A sense of what the implications are of that. I want to play some sound from Tim Wise at uh, an Intelligence Squared debate. I think it was NPR. I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure. One of those debates. And this is from 2007, shortly after uh, this uh, ban on affirmative action policies in Michigan were, was passed. And he speaks of uh, it's. It, it, we'll, we'll put a link to the to the YouTube. The entire thing is. Is worth um, listening to because he doesn't even go into existing 
discrimination as we see it today. He speaks only uh, essentially of this notion of having no race consciousness when dealing with past racism. Let's, let's play this clip. You know, it always amazes me to hear critics of affirmative action speak about this subject as if racial preference were something that were invented in the 60s to benefit people of color. Because, in fact, whether we wish to acknowledge it or not, and of course we don't, the entire history of this country is the history of affirmative action for white folks like myself. And unless we begin by discussing that affirmative action and the impact that it has had, we engage in a discussion that is both ethically and practically irresponsible. Contrary to what Joseph tells you, this debate is about the extent to which racism still exists because it is indeed the existence of that racism which necessitated affirmative action in the beginning and continues to necessitate it today. Whether we wish to acknowledge it or not, enslavement and the genocide segregation did not only oppress people of color, they elevated white folks and provided us with opportunities that we did not in fact earn. The Homestead Act allowed whites to claim over 270 million acres of land for virtually nothing down at a time when folks of color could not. Today, there are 40 million white folks descended directly from those who received that land, give away millions of them still living on the property. They owe their lives to affirmative action. Then there was the FHA home loan program, which for the first 30 years of its existence operated in a whites-only fashion, lending over $120 billion worth of government-backed housing equity to whites, thereby creating the white middle class. And in large measure, because of those preferences, the typical black college couple, college-degreed couple, starts out with less than one-fifth the net worth of the typical young white couple because the latter of those has likely received the benefits of their family's prior head start, while the former are likely to have accumulated far less, having had less chance to do so. So against that backdrop, ending affirmative action would only further cement the systemic advantages for whites that have been in place for hundreds of years. It would be tantamount to favoring those three laps ahead in a five-lap race, even though those who were ahead gained their head start as the result of an unfair process. So, I mean, th this... This notion of a lack of race consciousness um, is, is simply, it just belies common sense. And now what you're going to see and, and what some are arguing, uh, and uh, as well on the left, is that this affords the opportunity of uh, a place like uh, University of Michigan to look at other factors to provide affirmative action on other factors aside from race. Now, we, we know this exists already for advantaged people. <laughs> more often than not, white people, and more often than not, rich people. There is a, an affirmative action policy that has always been in existence for legacy applicants. If your father or mother went to a university, you get a a little boost, whatever the, the units they use in determining your, your worth in terms of being admitted to a college or a university, if you are a legacy, and particularly even more so if your parents have contributed to the endowment of the college, you get extra points. If you come from a good school, you get extra points. In some instances, if you come from certain regions, 
that aren't a, a, a function of race but end up being from white regions, you get a boost. If you do well on standardized testing, which we know is also a function of your income, maybe you can afford to go to Kaplan's and prep. You get a boost. There's all sorts of affirmative action that takes place in college admissions. Donald Sterling tapes. Yeah. The, the first thing I want to say about these tapes is these tapes should be the last nail in the coffin of the idea that there is any meritocracy in American capitalism. Any misconception that anyone ever had about rich people getting where they are because they're smarter than us had to die with this tape because wow. There are so many levels of terribleness to these tapes. It's just like breathtaking. There's so much to study about the psychology of racism and sexism and just relationships. The very notion that what we hear on those tapes could be what some people think of as a relationship is horrifying to me. And then when I hear him laying into her with all this stuff like, why are you trying to hurt me? Don't you think I'm a good person? Why can't you be flexible about my racism? How do you know that you don't like racism if you haven't even tried it? When I hear Donald Sterling running all that low-level game, it dawns on me how being in denial about racism and being a horrible, manipulative boyfriend turn out to go really well with each other. They both basically work the same way. They're based on the same kind of mind games and evasive tactics and emotional abuse. They were a perfect match for each other. They go together like man and splaining. And there are so many other elements of this tape that I could go on about. The way that he's so invested in this inexperienced belief that she could be white or pass for white. The way he goes on about her being delicate, both as if being delicate is the measure of a woman's value and being delicate is the antithesis of being black. But the one part that stands out the most for me that I want to make sure to acknowledge is how this whole situation once again raises the question of why do racist words bring more accountability than racist practices? Because the thing about Donald Sterling is he's been known for for years for being racist behind the scenes with his business practices. He already got taken to court years ago by the Department of Justice for trying to keep blacks and Latinos from living on his property. So the question for me is why did those decades of racist practices not bring the same kind of heat as these racist words? And I'm not saying Donald Sterling got too much attention for these words. He deserves all the heat he's getting right now. I'm glad those tapes came out. I hope more tapes come out. I hope 
hope he's like the Tupac of unreleased racism tapes. And we can put them all together in a box set named Here's What They Think About You. But I just wish, when I watch a story like this, that we could figure out how to take that same energy and fury we bring to racist words and bring it just as hard to all the racist practices that generate injustice without generating TMZ clips. And that's not the snappiest ending, but I haven't made a video in a long time, so I'm just going to stop here. Many of the country's top political figures continue to congregate in Austin, Texas at the Lyndon B. Johnson Presidential Library to mark the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. Everyone from John Lewis to Haley Barber to George W. Bush has gathered to commemorate the landmark legislation. The star attraction was, of course, the nation's first black president, Barack Obama. In a time when cynicism is too often passed off as wisdom, it's perhaps easy to conclude that there are limits to change, that we are trapped by our own history, and politics is a fool's errand. And we'd be better off if we roll back big chunks of LBJ's legacy, or at least if we don't put too much of our hope, invest too much of our hope in our government. I reject such thinking. The president took the podium to speak about the progress of civil rights in this country in a very specific moment in his presidency, a moment when the discussion about race and progress is front and center in the national dialogue. We've been, of course, talking about race in the Obama era from the moment Barack Obama declared for his candidacy. But that debate has been louder and louder and louder, and over the last several weeks it has positively exploded. After Texas Congressman Louis Gohmert picked a very public fight with Attorney General Eric Holder during a committee hearing this week, Holder appeared at Al Sharpton's National Action Network and went off script to reflect on the incident and what might have actually been behind it. You look at the way the Attorney General of the United States was treated yesterday by a House committee. It had nothing to do with me. Forget that. What Attorney General has ever had to deal with that kind of treatment? <laughs> What president has ever had to deal with that kind of treatment? And today, even the president said something that was, I thought, really quite uncharacteristic. Something that stuck with me amidst the platitudes and cliches that often appear at an event like this. The president said this. He said that history is not guaranteed to move forward. Not at all. We are here today because we know we cannot be complacent. For history travels not only forwards, history can travel backwards, history can travel sideways. And securing the gains this country has made requires the vigilance of its citizens. Our rights, our freedoms, they are not given. They must be won, they must be nurtured through struggle and discipline. As if on cue, conservative firebrand Michelle Malkin's crew at Twitchy responded by asking of the president's comments if he was, quote, 
back on the crack pipe. But as difficult as it may be, let's forget for a second about what Michelle Malkin and other conservatives are saying on Twitter. Let's even forget for a moment what Eric Holder and Barack Obama himself are saying. Because in all the discussion and debate about racism and race and accusations of racism and whether Eric Holder has it worse than Janet Reno or if Barack Obama has it worse than Bill Clinton, there are some basic, really basic facts out there about what this country looks like, what it looks like through the prism of race that press themselves upon us. Questions about whether or not history will travel forward, about what history will write about this era. Indeed, there is the very real question about whether in the era of the first black president, what we call racial progress has stalled. Whether we are watching before our eyes, improbably at this moment, history move in reverse. At the very moment of one of the peak achievements of the civil rights movement, the presidency of a man named Barack Obama. And if that seems to you like an outlandish question to pose, just look at what has happened over the past several decades. The progress that was made to desegregate our schools after the Civil Rights Act has been almost entirely reversed. Today, almost three-quarters of black children attend schools that are over 50% non-white. Now, keep in mind, the modern civil rights era began in 1954 with the historic Brown v. Board decision declaring de jure school segregation unconstitutional. And now look where we are, six years later. The incarceration rate of black men has skyrocketed since 1960, jumping 230%, far outpacing the rate for white men. And millions of African Americans are living in poverty. 28% of African Americans are living below the poverty line. That's double the percentage for non-Hispanic white people. And you can go down statistic after statistic after statistic, from arrests to unemployment to income inequality to a wealth gap that is actually getting worse right now. That, to me, is the story of civil rights in the 21st century, of race in the Obama era. Not who called whom what, but the persistent gap that separates white people from black and brown folks across almost every single last category of social attainment. Those facts, that information, that is why the president is warning us that progress is not a given. And he is, I would submit, very much right. Actually, can I ask you about that, Dr. Kelly? About the uh, president's new um, initiative, My Brother's Keeper? Yes. Historically speaking, where does this place the president in this, this particular uh, this particular initiative? I mean, I guess it's a first, right? And you know how I feel about first. <clears throat> <laughs> well, you know, our first black president has been called on multiple times to, you know, explicitly talk about race, explicitly talk about the um, different outcomes for um, people of color, um, African-American men in particular. Um, and I think he's really been buffeted by the news of the past year. And so he's come up with this um, program that's not a federal program, Jennifer Rubin of the uh, Washington Post. Uh, Jennifer Rubin, it is not a federal program. It is a initiative 
<laughs> from the White House that uses private dollars to try and uh, work with young men. So under different orders. Yeah, and 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 bring in corporations, which is yeah, interesting. Um, as a non-corporate kind of girl, and um, I mean, I mean, isn't this? I mean, funny enough, with all of the out, outrage that uh, seems to be coming from certain conservative spaces, it's really funny. It's like, but wait, isn't this exactly the type of private, uh, uh, uh private market uh, thing that you have always said that should be the re- way we solve certain problems? Yeah. I- it's interesting. I mean, so, you know, just to clap back at all the conservatives who are like, oh, this is racist and awful and victimhood, blah, blah, blah. Is that, is that your official uh, conservative voice? Yes, it's very small. <laughs> it's in the distance. <laughs> I'd, I'd also like to point out that that's your your voice uh, anytime uh, you do an impression of me. <laughs> Uh, that, that just, I just want to be clear on this particular voice. Since that his voice uh, is, is it's, the... It's totally different, Elon. I swear. It, okay, really, all right. It, it comes it, from it, a no. different place. It really, okay. really does. Excellent. Continue. So, you know, t- t- it's not unconstitutional to for the president to have an initiative. It's not unconstitutional. It's not sort of, you know, part of his king power to, you know, as king regent of the United States, as mm-hmm. many people would argue he is, to to be concerned about things that are happening and and, and the, the different impacts that society has on young black men and young Latino men. It's, it's true. And um, so for, for him to want to do something about it, it it's fine. But I think it's also um, taking that off the table because it's nonsense. I, I think it's interesting to, to sort of think about black men and the politics of respectability in this moment too, right? And to be sure that... Um, we are critically engaging with what we are telling young black men to do in this moment, like what we propose as a solution and what we see as the problem um, that they are facing. So I, I just, I mean, what do you guys think as, as you know, black men survivor people who, who made it through so far? Yes, you're, you're here, right? I'm here, but I'm, but, uh, if, if nothing else, what I've been taught, uh, uh, especially in, in the, uh, the past few years is that I'm only here as long as, um, I'm deemed, uh, not, not scary. <laughs> not, uh, at any point in time, if, if, uh, if I am in fact deemed scary or a problem, I can in fact not be here. Um, it was funny that, like I said, I, I think I've mentioned on the show before, but definitely on Twitter radio, uh, that growing up, uh, in, in, in the hood, uh, we, that we were often taught that, uh, the statistics were against us. I'm not even sure now that, now that I'm older, I would love to actually run those numbers, uh, about the idea of whether or not they said most likely, most likely I would be in prison or in jail or dead by the time I was 21. I would love to be able to run those numbers. So I'm not sure it was the, the truth. And it was really a horrible thing to tell for uh, kids, uh, if it wasn't the truth, because it, 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 that wasn't what got me out of, uh, kept me out of trouble. Um, but, so, so yeah, so like I, so surviving, I'm, I'm like, ah, that's kind of funny, cause I also like, I just uh, read about, uh, not read about, we covered, um, uh, not too long ago about the fact that black men are less likely to run in affluent neighborhoods, because, uh, like jog, like for exercise, uh, because just not, they would prefer, they don't want the problems. <laughs> these are, these are actual things that happen around male blackness. They have to uh, go to the gym and get on the treadmill, huh? <laughs> they, they would prefer to do that as opposed to running through a nice neighborhood. I, I live in a nice neighborhood and I, and I, like I said, I dared somebody to, uh, to stop me or call a cop, uh, on me because I, it, it, I would, I would have an article already written by the time I got out of prison, but just by the phone calls I sent out. <laughs> um, it would, it would, it would be a thing. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I live in a very, very black place. I live in Durham, North Carolina. And so, I mean, I see black men jogging, but it's also not very, I wouldn't describe it as affluent. I mean, I don't know. It's very suburban. I mean, like, I mean but if it's predominantly black, it wouldn't have the same uh, feel. But I guess, yeah. The, I, I, I was, I'm, on one hand, I'm ecstatic that the president would actually put his weight behind such a thing. Yeah. Like I said, it's a first. Like the, the idea of, uh, not to be funny, young men of color are not exactly on a very high on the priority list in America unless the priority list is to in fact blame them for something. Um, so on one hand, yay, you're, you, you want to have this conversation. You want to deal with the epidemic that has been uh, plaguing uh, the community uh, with uh, such high unemployment rates with, with, with the idea that we're throwing uh, kids in jail for nonsense. Oh, so many different things that are happening to this community. And so you want to actually talk to this community. Great. But then, as you said, uh, the whole respectability politics kicks in. And I've already pointed out before that, yes, he's the president of the United States, but he's also an old black man, right? He's <laughs> not man. that old. Thing. He's in his 50s. Oh, yeah. old, black, old black people <laughs> have a certain thought process around certain things. When it comes like, especially around respectability politics, uh, uh, the the whole line between of uh, uh, the line break in that I don't know I'm not sure what age it is. It might you might be at the cutoff, Doctor Kelly. I think I'm the cutoff. Uh, I, I, yeah, because you're young enough that uh, that you you reject a lot of the respectability politics, but right above you are pe- folks are still really ahead of it. So I think around your age is where the line stops. And please note, there's a bunch of folks un- uh, younger than you that still subscribe to respectability politics. That's the way they were raised. But the a lot of us started to challenge that concept, because especially, uh, God forbid, you had any type of historical uh, uh, perspective on it. You kind of go, well, it's not like us following those rules made them like us. <laughs> it's, it's, not, yeah. it's not like uh, doing these things all of a sudden makes it all better and, and and it solves racism. No, you can be as respectable as you want and still get shot in the face and they'll blame you because you listen to you might have listened to some hip hop one day or something like that. They uh they they, they ran um uh what you call it uh Van Jones out of the White House because he, he he signed some petition when he was younger around uh 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 things even though like he's one of the most respect he was at that point he was in the White House right. Respectable. He was about as respectable as they can be. They don't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if once they decide you you are a, a problem or a, a, a dangerous or something like that. So I reject it. And when the president kind of calls those types of ideas down, it bugs me because he basically he kept the no excuses thing. And I get it. I understand it's it's he almost has to preach that. And a lot of times when I point out that it's not quite excuses, it's 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 observing the 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 situation at hand and not being and not. Saying that, that not not lying. That's that's what it comes down to, Doctor Kelly. Uh, if you, if uh, from my perspective, it's lying to folks when you don't acknowledge the bigger issues and acknowledge that sometimes that even working hard and doing what you're supposed to do still can equal nothing. You know what I mean? And when you keep telling me that uh, if I do if I'm good and I have no excuses if I do A, B, and C, uh, work hard, blah blah blah, you can achieve. But the, it's like you can't achieve. The wording should very be you might achieve. <laughs> There's, it, like if you want to be honest about it, but I understand you can't yeah. tell that kids. Kids have to be believe and have stars in their eyes. But I have a hard time just flat out lying. Yeah, Aaron. So I'm. Uh, if you want, like Elon won't be quiet, so I can't even hear from Aaron. I was. I was. Just... <laughs> <The> professor. <laughs> so that's me. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm so sorry. Uh, but yeah, I was going to say that uh, my nephew. I actually 
have told him, and I'm like I said, I, I realize my nephew's 11 years old, and I'm responsible for the discussion about how society will treat black men because his dad's kind of a ninny, and my mom and my sister don't quite, you know, they can't quite get over the top with it. So I'm the person, and I, I actually, Elon, I tell him that you might get unlucky, and you have to build up a certain amount of strength. And I know that, and we sit there, and he, and he's kind of, you know, he's it's as a, at 11, he's kind of weirded out by it, but I want him to know now than have him be shocked when he's 23. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want him to graduate from Stanford and people are still, you know, and he does something, all of a sudden he does something crazy. And they call him a thug and don't even understand how he graduated and so on and so forth. You know what I like mean? that would never happen. Yeah, you know what I mean? So I don't, I would rather him start understanding that he is still going uphill no matter what he does now. But you're right, Elon. I don't, like I said, I don't, like you said, I don't, you're absolutely right. I don't want to, I, I can't lie. I can't, I couldn't lie to a kid. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. NBC Meet the Press host David Gregory presented a curiously slanted roundtable on April 27th. Right-leaning journalists Rich Lowry of the National Review and Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic. Also joining them, conservative professor and Fox contributor Mallory Factor. From the other side, so to speak, near a tandem of the Liberal Center for American Progress. Now, of course, one thing jumps out right away. We've got three white male conservative-leaning pundits and a Democratic liberal pundit near a tandem. Not exactly diversity. This was made all the more obvious when the discussion shifted, ironically enough, to the issue of affirmative action. Specifically, the Supreme Court's 6-2 ruling affirming the state of Michigan's ban as it applies to public universities. One has to wonder about the NBC producers who thought that a show hosted by a white male should invite three other white men and just one Asian woman to discuss diversity. Oddly, though, the show kicked off with a segment about the odious, racist rants of Los Angeles Clippers owner Donald Sterling. But for that, the show assembled a panel of all African Americans. So someone was obviously sensitive to the need to bring non-white viewpoints on the show. And there's something telling about this. An example of obvious, blatant racism calls for non-white panelists. But when it comes time to discuss law and public policy, well, that's apparently the domain of right-leaning white male pundits. If the point was to offer an illustration of the need to diversify elite punditry, NBC did a great job. So there's a change in your emotions.
and Dr. Kelly, you, I believe uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty uh, 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 docu- well documented that the uh, the, the whole uh, pulling yourself up, blah blah blah. It's not like I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, right. and it, it's it's not it's not um, new, you know. So in this week, and that's happened before. Um, <laughs> point out that um, yeah, respectability politics is really old. Um, I write about it in my book um, about the turn of the 20th century and boycott, streetcar boycott movement and organizing around Plessy. And I, I, um, one of my favorite historical figures is this guy named John Mitchell Jr., who was the editor of a newspaper in Richmond, Virginia. Um, he was born um, as a, a child, enslaved, um, freed as a young person, grows up, but he, he, he lives to see the destruction of the progress that's been made um during reconstruction and the, the few decades afterward he, he was a elected official he was a newspaper owner and he's watching this sort of world melt around him into segregation and lynching and disfranchisement and his response is to be angry at at, at the segregationists and the lynchers but also to sort of turn on black people for not being excellent enough mm-hmm. and and to sort of say you know you have to you know, pull yourself up and thrift and saving your money and not going to juke joints and, you know, <laughs> gallivanting <laughs> about. Let me see if I can find a good, good, uh, John Mitchell Jr. quote. Uh, and, and when you talk about the, um, uh, the respectability politics, wasn't that one of the reasons why they chose, um, um, Rosa Parks, uh, in the, the absolutely, whole- NACP uh, always chose uh, the most excellent folks to be mm-hmm. the test case representatives, and if you weren't excellent, they wouldn't represent you. Mm-hmm. Um, here's like, here's so- a good John Mitchell Jr. quote. You want to hear this one? Yes. The disreputable, insulting, lazy, no count element amongst us must be made to understand that they retard our progress as a race, and would be more service to us under the ground than they are above it. Let them improve themselves and help us. I mean, that's, that's kind of hardcore. <laughs> and I think, you know, sort of a, you know, a Bill Cosby moment, a, you know, get yourself together, work harder. And, and it's interesting to me to, and, and I don't think this is what Obama is doing, but I think when people are frustrated, so this is a moment of profound frustration for John Mitchell Jr., a person who's a clear arrest advocate who's literally saved people's lives, you know? So I'm not discounting who he was as a person, right? So he literally saved people from being lynched and worked tirelessly to do it and was one of the most um, brave anti-lynching advocates of his time, right? So he's not he's not a sellout. But at the same time, I think he's frustrated. And so the only thing he can do is turn on black people and say, be more excellent. And so I think it's interesting to see in this moment um, when we are so frustrated by the story of Jordan Davis and Trayvon Martin and, and countless stories like that by stop and frisk, by all these kinds of things that keep coming and coming and coming on the policy front, on the, the quick decision about who our children are front, that then we, we, we just say, well, just be better, baby. Just be your best self. And then maybe really good things will come because we, we want something more. So to me, it speaks to a moment of, um, profound frustration, and that frustration, I think, um, has an echo that we, we we've accomplished this amazing first that we have a black president in the White House who can start this kind of initiative, and yet we these are the things we are facing, and so I think you know the to me the politics of respectability are, are born of frustration, 
And so I can understand them. And you know what? I I I, oh, I understand the politics of respectability because I mean I I look at it from I guess a, a slightly different perspective. I look at it as the argument. Like if you look at if if you look at I guess racism and equality as an argument, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the argument against it, uh, and the argument that was made numerous times is that we were we lacked the capability of being uh, human because we weren't actual human. We were uh, we were actually lesser than. We were we were savages. We were, mm-hmm. all of these things. And so the argument is that we aren't we aren't human. So why treat them as human? And mm-hmm. so the uh, to me the idea of respectability politics was to counter that argument, demonstrate the excellence, to yes, demonstrate the <laughs> civility of blackness. Right? We we are human. We are look at this. We're upstanding, uh, uh, neat, clean, speak properly, i.e., like white folks. We do all the we we can fit in just like any of you. We can be the same as cultured as you. We can do any of those things. So you need to respect us or uh, give us the proper uh, our, our proper due. In situations. And, and the sad irony about it, this historically is that as we did that, the people who are most targeted as um, threats to the, the social order, threats to white supremacy, people who are most likely to be lynched, people who are most likely to be targeted um, and excluded or segregated against were the people who were excellent. The people who could buy a train ticket, the people who could open a school. You can't have a, a school burned down if you didn't build it. You can't have uh, someone lynched because they had books and a piano in their home if they hadn't achieved it. And so it was the very achievements that made black people targets in that time period. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's just, it's heartbreaking, right? It's, it's, it's sickening at, at its very core, but it's something that we have to challenge and not just look at ourselves as, uh, inherently not good enough all the time. Right. Our, our, our kids are kids. They are kids like other people's kids. Sometimes they are awesome. Sometimes they're insane because they are young people because that is just how kids are sometimes. And so, you know, I think judging, um, judging people at, at a higher standard and, and expecting this level of perfection and excellence from black people that we don't expect from anyone else, especially our young black men, it, it that's, that's where I feel like, ugh. No but it, it, it's funny. It's because when you have that conversation, uh, they, it, it, it gets boiled down to, if you say that that's ridiculous to expect that, uh, I know people have come at me really, uh, froggies, uh, basically saying that I'm co-signing, uh, ignorance or I'm co-signing not working hard or half-assing. Because I don't want to put this, put these rules down, because uh, like, because the, the the argument, because I've, I've actually uh, uh, heard some folks make the argument, and the argument against uh, against what we're saying here sounds really good if you don't take into certain take th- certain things into uh, consideration. Like the idea is like, so you're what are you telling people? Are you so you're saying that uh the, the systems against them and stuff like that? How are people supposed to uh, work hard if you're constantly telling them that things are uh, things are rough and they have nothing they can't control? My favorite one, Elon. My favorite one. A professor in graduate school told me, I've heard that black people have to work harder to achieve in graduate school and in academia, but isn't that great? Because then you're just working harder. Oh my god. No. No. Oh my Direct god. quote. Oh my god. No. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't, I don't, I really don't enjoy. Like, I, someone on Twitter, I, I forget who tweeted it, was saying that during the uh, My Brother's Initiative, that it's, it said as much as it, it seems like he was trying not to, it does sound like he's giving a slightly uh, 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 be twice as good uh, speech to the kids, and 
Like, it, like, it's, it's, I know you're not, he's not trying, but it's, it's coming off that way. And I have an issue with it, even though I actually, if you yeah, ask I mean, me, I'm, I'm a practitioner of the twice as good. Yes. Like, I, I've lived a twice as good life. Yes. I feel guilty when I'm not twice as good. Yep. And, you yep. know, the little so, hair jumps on my shoulder. And so then when people come at us, it's funny because like, let's say like, like you believe, you follow it, I follow it. I am a big believer in the twice as good, uh, uh, argument, uh, uh in my own life. But I, I feel inappropriate and wrong and as if I have failed, if I am going to push this down onto another generation without any type of pushback. Saying, no, this is not okay. They shouldn't have to be twice as good, uh, uh, uh to make it. Cause even, even as twice as good, what, what does that do? We've now seen that that doesn't mean anything. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories and more of my personal musings thanks so much for your support so i've got good news about the state of race relations in america one uh, we understand that uh, this country is not quite there yet in terms of our race relations. Now, why is that good news? It's because if you acknowledge the problem, you understand the problem, you can be, go on your way to fixing it. There's actually one group that doesn't understand the problem. But let me uh, first give you the context and then tell you who that group is. So first of all, by 2043, uh, non-Hispanic whites will become a minority of our populations. They're already a majority, of course, today. Uh, and already the, among the new kids that are born, uh, non-Hispanic whites are a minority. By 2043, if you look at the entire population, whites will be a minority. So, uh, in fact, the breakdown, according to estimates, by 2050 will be non-Hispanic whites, 47%, Hispanics, 28%, African Americans, 13%, Asians, 7%, and multiracial individuals, 4%. I'm surprised that number is that low. My guess is that that would actually be higher by that time, because I suspect that given these numbers, there'll be a lot more uh, multiracial couples going in the future more so than the trajectory indicates today. So now, uh, when people were asked today though, well look, even though we're headed to that situation, uh, do you still believe that minorities are at a disadvantage and if we should do something about it? And the results were fascinating. This was uh, a report that was done for the Center for American Progress and Policy Link. It was a massive study. And they say new steps, this was the question, new steps to reduce racial and ethnic inequality in America through investments in areas like education, job training, and infrastructure improvement. Do you want to do that? 71% of Americans say that they agree with that. Think about that. They recognize that there are racial and ethnic inequalities in America and that the way to fix that is through investments. 71% is not a small number. 
You know, the idiots in Washington keep saying this is a center-right country. Really? If 71% of Americans say, yes, there is racial inequalities, and yes, we should spend money to address that, you really think it's a center-right country? I think it's a center-left country, and decidedly so. In fact, if you look at whites, who theoretically should be against this, oh, what, you're going to spend money to help minorities? Now, if you think like a right-winger, and you're out for yourself, and you think, oh, I don't care about our community, I don't care about other races, so look out for my own, you would think that whites would be against this. Well, they're not. Actually, 63% of all whites support this as well. They want to spend money to make sure that we get rid of racial and ethnic inequality. There's only one group that opposes conservative whites. And they're not even that large uh, a percentage in this case. It's 51% of white conservatives oppose the idea of spending money to address racial and ethnic inequalities. They're the only remaining standouts saying no. Either there is no problem with race inequality, or even if there is, I don't give a damn, and I don't think you should spend any money on it. So I think that's enormously encouraging. That means they are losing, and that number is getting smaller and smaller every day. And all Americans, including white Americans, are saying in aggregate, yes, there is an issue, and yes, the government should do something to fix it. Now, you can disagree about what it is that the government should do to fix it. And I think that's a worthy debate. But they realize it's a problem and that someone needs to address it. Finally, I found one other thing encouraging here. It's that when they asked a much tougher question, and that was, are you willing to invest significantly more public funds to help close the gap in college graduation rates between black and Latino students and white students? 61% of Americans said yes. 61% is not a small number either. That's a comfortable win. If you win an election with 61%, that's a mandate. That's a blowout, right? 61% saying we should spend significantly more resources to make sure that we get a quality of opportunity in education between the different races. America's on the right path. Yes, there are some leftover conservatives that are still fighting the bad fight, but they're going to lose. They're in the middle of losing right now. Hey, Jay. This is Rebel calling again. Hope you're not getting sick of me. Um, I'm just going to keep calling as long as you have people responding about this subject at the end of your show. Uh, I just listened to the latest episode. There were two callers calling and talking about the polygamy thing. One of the callers, and you also, uh, seemed to get the impression that I was making a point that I wasn't. Something along the lines of, uh, polygamy is not a choice, therefore we should make it illegal, or something like that. I'm not quite sure what you thought I was saying, uh, but it wasn't that. The point I was making is that outlawing polygamy is not discrimination, which is just one of the many ways that polygamy is very different from same-sex marriage. I'm going to jump in and clarify here that I actually don't think I misinterpreted what Raul was saying either the first time or now that he's explained further. He is making the distinction between gay people who he says are born that way and polyamorous people who he says are not born that way. Although I think that is under contention, a lot of polyamorous people might disagree, and I don't think he has evidence to back up that claim, but that is the widely held belief, so I recognize and understand why he believes that to be the case. So he's making the distinction, and he says that gay people are born that way and polyamorous people aren't, and so if we were to discriminate against gay people, that would be wrong. 
but passing laws uh, outlawing the practices of polyamorous people isn't wrong because it's not technically discrimination. But what logically follows from that is that if, in a hypothetical world, if homosexuality were a choice, then it would be okay to ban that. And my response to that hypothetical, log what follows logically from his uh, base argument, is that I still don't think that's true. I think even if people choose to be gay, it, it would still be wrong to pass laws against them, even if it wasn't technically discrimination based on the way he's defining that word. And what the other caller pointed out is that people aren't born religious. They are raised to be whatever religion they uh, turn out to be. And some people change along the way. And we don't think it's right to uh, pass laws restricting those freedoms either. So it is certainly not the case that I thought that he was saying that because people are not born polyamorous, it is important to pass laws against them. That's clearly not what he was saying, but he was clearly trying to build a logical argument for why it is appropriate to pass laws against behaviors of consenting adults. And my response was just to point out that that portion of his argument was seriously flawed, and we'll get to the rest of his actual argument in a moment. The other caller was talking about uh, using the term polygamy versus polyamory. Polyamory just kind of strikes me as sort of like a name rebranding thing to make it sound better. Sort of how, like, if you say you're a creationist, people might look down on you, so instead of calling yourself creationist, you might say, oh, I believe in intelligent design, you know, just sort of a new phrase to call it to make it sound better. Or, you know, you're not drilling for oil, you're exploring for energy. Um, the caller said that they want to change the name because they want, or use the, the name polyamory instead because they want to make people think about less about fundamentalist Mormons and other highly conservative religious groups. But these groups do represent the majority of polygamy or, or polyamory, however you want to uh, label it as it exists. A couple of points on this one. First of all, I would love to hear the numbers to back up the claim that the majority of people in America who are interested in practicing non-monogamous relationships are Mormon fundamentalists practicing polygamy. Uh, to me, that sounds like a statement born out of total ignorance. So I did some just real quick and dirty research. The number I came up with was that a newspaper in Utah, and for the sake of argument, we'll assume that the vast majority of Mormon fundamentalists are in Utah. And there are about 37,000 people in Utah who uh, identify as Mormon fundamentalists. However, only about half of those are currently practicing polygamy. So I did you know, a little bit of math. That comes out to 0.005%. That's five one-thousandths of 1% 1 of the population of the United States. And I just don't have to stretch my mind very far to believe that more than five one-thousandths of 1% 1 of the U.S. population are interested in polyamory. I, that just doesn't seem like much of a stretch to me. That's the first point. The second point is, let's say we took a poll of everyone in the U.S. and asked who identifies as polyamorous, and let's just say the result, although I don't believe this at all, let's say that result came back as less than five one-thousandths of one percent of people said that they identified as polyamorous. It makes me wonder if that could have anything to do with the fact that people like Raul and lots of people like him are very close to ready to basically equate them to the people who commit some of the worst brainwashing and abuse of women and children in our country's history. That might be the sort of thing that people shy away from even giving the impression that they're related to, even though in actuality there is no relation at all. These groups do represent the majority of polygamy or, or polyamory, however you want to uh, label it 
as it exists. And it's what we should be thinking about when we're talking about whether we should legalize plural marriage or not. And if you want to change the name for something to stop people thinking about something, how it actually is in real life, then the problem isn't the label you're using. The problem is the activity itself. That's all I wanted to add for now. Keep up the good work, Jay. Okay, sorry. I, I said before that he was coming very close to equating the two. Turns out he just actually was equating the two, saying that there's no difference between polygamy and polyamory, and that it's just two words for the same thing, which is ridiculous. I, I know we get into danger zones when we start bringing animals into these discussions, but the, the comparison that comes to mind is that's like saying that animal abuse is the same as pet ownership. It, they could not be more different. Hi, it's Matt in Michigan. Just a quick note about terminology. Somebody asked you to use the word polyamory in place of the word polygamy. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think those are just two different things. Polyamory would be relationships amongst multiple partners. Polygamy would be specifically marriage amongst multiple partners. And it has, <clears throat> I can kind of understand the objection because it has a lot of baggage. Um, and there have been traditions in which um, women and even girls were uh, exploited and coerced, and all that is a very ugly history, but that's not exclusive, it seems to me, to, to what polygamy is. I mean, you could use the word plural marriage instead, but I'm not really sure that's any better. Um, basically, that, that kind of harmful, exploitative uh, polygamy has been going on probably since the advent of agriculture, when we first became concerned with this whole uh paternity notion but there's a ted talk that i would really recommend people check out relating to humans as sexual omnivores and talking about uh sort of this notion of monogamy being the so-called natural way for humans to interact now birds who are monogamous have lifelong partnerships that don't break period right um animals that are, are sort of biologically designed to have monogamous relationships and lifelong relationships do that naturally and sort of automatically. So the notion that that's how we're built, that we're supposed to be monogamous and that's the only way we're supposed to be, that's the only natural kind of um, romantic or sexual relationship for a human, is just kind of silly. Obviously, if that was how our biology was structured to function, that's how, you know, 99% of the people in the world would always function because that would be our natural impulse and the fact is it, it isn't and that's just something we have to deal with one other quick note uh, robert heinlein explored um the, the some ideas about plural marriage um i think pretty convincingly uh in some of his science fiction books um look up maybe i think it's the moon is a harsh mistress very good book just some suggestions uh that's my two cents thanks Hi, this is Katie Klobusik, Festival of Social Media and Activism Director, pausing for a moment to respond as a listener and weigh in on the polyamory discussion. I myself identify as polyamorous, a label that took me 15 years and a heteronormal, you know, a normative lifestyle attempt-inducing anxiety disorder to discover. I do not ID as queer for many of the reasons discussed over the past several months of the show. I'm a cis straight female and have the lived experience as such, but I do connect to the queer community and find the most acceptance there. I too bristle the conflation of polyamory and polygamy that Raul from Hawaii made twice now, as it is made all the time. Condemning something without having any knowledge of what the word or term means is distasteful and ignorant at best. Thank you to Matt from Michigan for pointing out that polyamory and polygamy are simply separate, full stop. I also recommend Clifford Ryan's TED Talk, We Are Designed to Be Sexual Omnivores. 
Of all the topics that have been discussed on the show, this one made me pause for comment because of my personal life experience. People typically make assumptions about my character, my life, and my relationship rather than asking, oh, what does that mean for you when I mention polyamory? I've had to sit down and explain what my dating and relationship style means individually to almost everyone in my circle. I'm part of a tiny minority, a tiny, tiny minority. I suppose that's what makes it easy for folks like Nathan from Vancouver to think that I, quote, don't have a different sexuality, using a talking point long ago hushed but quite long-standing about same-sex marriage. While simultaneously describing polyamorous relationships and possible marriages as too complicated for paperwork to be feasible, he conjectures that people would just dive on into it for base, culturally dangerous reasons. That seems intellectually dishonest, but common, as most people simply don't think through the lived experiences of others. Melissa made the excellent point that quote-unquote regular marriages are hardly simple. I agree. Polyamorous relationships aren't simple either, and they require a lot of communication. First dates sound similar to those in the queer community where you have to discuss what you're looking for in detail. In fact, there's a joke in the poly community that everyone thinks we're having sex constantly, but we actually do far more talking and communicating than people in standard monogamous relationships. That's the part I connect with. I like how upfront and honest and respectful and adult the poly community typically is. One big reason I don't appreciate conflation with polygamy's misogynistic and patriarchal reputation. I don't know if I came to be polyamorous because of my environment, my genes, or a combination of both. Frankly, that's pretty irrelevant. It's who I am, how I relate to other people, and what fulfills me as a human being. You have to like it. You don't actually have to have feelings about it at all, as it doesn't affect you. I would make a request, however. Before assuming things about an entire group of people, perhaps take the time to listen to a few of them. If that interests you when it comes to non-monogamy, the two best sex educators, Tristan Caramino and Reed Mahalko, explain it in frank and human and storytelling-style way on Tristan's podcast, Sex Out Loud. Not safe for work, by the way. Um, it's the September 14th, 2012 episode. Tristan and Reed are super responsive on social media, as am I. So if this whole thing has left you incredulous or curious or some combination of the two, there are resources for learning more before making assumptions based on our heteronormative culture. Thanks and be well. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all of those, including Katie, who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So uh, just a quick fun fact before I wrap up is that I had no idea until literally two days ago that Katie identified as Polly. I mean, we've worked together for, I don't know, six or eight months, and we've known each other for about three years now, and it's just never come up. I've never asked or cared or anything like that. But look how easy it was for me to be an ally of hers, to not make her feel like I disapproved of her you know, lifestyle, be it you know chosen or not. And all I had to do was not care and take a position that people should be able to do whatever they want. And she never had to explain her whole life story to me to get that allyship from me. And you know, just one one quick example of uh, you know how easy it can be. Now I'm going to wrap up with with a quick thought on this. Dave from Olympia, Washington called in. Unfortunately, he left about a 13 minute voicemail on this subject. So I'm only going to play a tiny bit of it and then pick up after that. Hi Jay, this is Dave from Olympia. I think the Possibilities for thought experiment that uh, plural marriage poses to the progressive and liberal community are just fascinating. Um, although I don't think there are any currently organized moves to legalize multiple marriages. I could be wrong. but uh, So I don't think it's a pressing issue, but it's a fantastic thought experiment. 
I'm going to wrap up responding to Dave and then mercifully put this conversation to bed. If you want to chime in on it, you're more than welcome. But if anything interesting is said, I'm going to move it over to the uh, the members-only bonus show uh, where we can sort of expand on things if we need to. But uh, I don't want to sound like I'm picking on Dave here because – there's really nothing to pick on him for. I don't think that what he said is very revelatory of him in particular, but I do think it, it sort of holds up a mirror to the paradigm of our society and, and makes it look a little different than we imagine ourselves. You know, America is like the beacon of freedom, right? But the way he just described it, you know, this is a, a low priority issue because not very many people are pushing for it. But that sort of makes clear what we would all know in the back of our heads if we thought about it, that freedom is not really the default in America. Uh, restrictions on freedom tends to be the default, and then the people have to organize to have those restrictions lifted rather than the government making a good argument for why they should be able to impose those restrictions. So, you know, we, th- we think back to, although we agree that polyamory and polygamy is not the same thing uh, by any stretch, but we look back to, you know, when it was originally outlawed in the mid 1800s, you know, maybe they really were just looking out for the women and children. I tend to think it might be about anti-Mormon discrimination and feeling of, you know, they're not doing their religion right and we need to get them to stop. That's that's kind of where I think they were probably coming from, but it had the additional benefit of at least attempting to protect uh, the women and children who were being sucked into this horribly abusive patriarchal system that we would all be happy to see abolished. That's great. But if patriarchy and child abuse and, and abuse of women happens in and out of non-monogamous relationships, be they polyamory in the modern day or polygamy in, in history or the modern day, and polyamorous relationships can exist without those abuses, well then clearly the relationship itself is not the linchpin of the problem. The abuse and the coercion is clearly the problem when we talk about Mormon fundamentalists and how they practice their uh, polygamous relationships. And so it is my hope that as modern-day civilized people having a conversation, we would be able to parse out those two things and see that they should not be equated as if they could not be separated from each other. And then from that point, ask ourselves why the freedoms of consenting adults who wish to practice polyamory and have it legally recognized should be restricted. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all sad stories And wonder what we're missing Past our own sad stories and wonder what we're doing.
with 